Hello and welcome to a Hoover Institution roundtable discussion on Reagan's Soviet policy as a guide to dealing with Iran, North Korea, and other rogue regimes. Our speaker in this recording is Corey Shockey, a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Her remarks were recorded on March 23, 2016. So my answer to the question of are there generalized rules is yes, emphatically yes. There are you can look at uh, tools that are useful for the United States across these many cases, and you can find commonalities. And you can especially find commonalities coming out of the approach the Reagan administration had. I want to start, though, by saying that I'm struck, Yuri, that your list <coughs> doesn't include what I think is very often the most important tool that we have uh, available to us, which is economics. Um, and especially in the cases of China and Iran, the two countries that look to be trying to carry out an authoritarian capitalist model, it hinges crucially on delivering prosperity. Um, and that is something those governments, you know, the Chinese are, are, are being um, gymnastic with their ideology in order to try and outrun its limitations with prosperity. And I think I see, I would defer to Abbas, who's an actual expert on this, I think I see the Iranians trying to do the exact same thing. Sorry, um, so, so economics is a hugely important tool, and I think ought to be at the forefront of how we think about these issues. Um, also because uh, in, in Iran, I'm less confident of my knowledge on China, but at least in Iran, the most pernicious forces in the Iranian government and in Iranian society are the ones benefiting most from the economic closure of the country, right? So if you want to challenge the Iranian government, if there is only narrow opportunity for economic participation with the outside world, the IRGC and the most conservative elements of the leadership are going to get those opportunities. Whereas if you throw the doors open, the, then you actually unleash the animal spirits of people trying to get rich. That may, in fact, prevent regime change in the near term but it does create a much more stable uh, basis for successful regime change in the middle to long term. Moreover, it's a much more humanitarian approach to take. Um, and the third thing I will say about economic sanctions is that when we do them badly, as we did in Cuba, um, you doubly penalize people living under authoritarian governments, right? Because, because not only are they oppressed, but they're poor. Um, whereas when you do them in a more uh, targeted way, which I'm proud to say the United States Treasury Department has really become ingenious at doing in the last 15 years, where you can target a leadership, prevent them from buying homes in Miami, prevent them from traveling to their Swiss bank accounts, uh, prevent them from being stockholders in corporations that trade in the United States. Those kinds of refinements on sanctions are actually quite beneficial in chipping away at the authoritarian leadership in a country without doubly penalizing the people living under a repressive government. So, so that's my three cheers for leading with economics um, 
on these rules. Second point I want to make is about what I think the Reagan administration did well in thinking about uh, how to counter authoritarian societies. Uh, Mike McFall had a terrific piece in the Wall Street Journal's Washington Wire a couple of months ago uh, pointing out that the Reagan administration oversaw three successful regime changes, uh, the Philippines, uh, Chile, and South Korea. Um, and I, I think those three case studies are, are so different from each other and so important in lots of ways, not least in that they all occurred peacefully, right? Which is something we have, uh, we have, as a government, have taken a penchant for regime change in about the last 15 years in ways that are extraordinarily costly to the societies in which those regime changes occur. And that's why I think those three case studies, although they are more drawn out in time, and in some cases require noxious moral compromises, right? Like uh, letting Ferdinand Marcos live out his life and his wife live out their lives in Hawaii is something unpalatable, but it seems to me there is no doubt it was good for the people of the Philippines, and it was good for the advancement of democracy in the Philippines, um, and therefore we should hold our noses and actually not consider our ethics so much superior to the actual lived experiences of people suffering in authoritarian societies. So, so what do I think the Reagan administration did well? First, talking to governments. George gave several nice examples where, again, in the Bush administration, we very often thought that talking to people with blood on their hands um, was either a great gift to give those people or something we shouldn't ethically be engaged in. And I think that's as unseemly as it sounds when spoken on a philosophical level, is hugely important for seeing where you can find compromises, for seeing where you can chip away, where opportunities present themselves that you can find a crack in the wall and drive a little bit of a wedge in. Um, so, so first, talk to the bad guys. Um, and, you know, maybe, as with Gorbachev, you will get lucky and somebody who's genuinely an outlier to the system and, and interested in change. Or maybe in the case of Chinese, they're not at all interested, the political leadership's not at all interested in change. But President Bush, in the, in the conversation that I'm sure you all know, right, where President Bush, uh, with his Chinese counterpart, says, you know, I, I sit up at night worrying about another terrorist attack. And his Chinese counterpart says, I sit up at night worrying about having to create 20, 250 million jobs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's useful information, right? So, so talk to bad guys. The second thing uh, that they did really well is reach not just talking past governments and to societies, but reaching past governments and societies. Um, and here, I think, Mike McFall in his time as ambassador to Moscow it was such an admirable example and paid such a very high price for meeting with dissidents, for talking not just to the Russian government, but engaging actively and vociferously in Russian society. I think that matters a whole lot. It matters uh, because ultimately regime change is carried out by the people in those societies. 
Uh, I always blanch a little bit when we talk about winning the Cold War because I actually think, you know, the people of Poland won the Cold War. The people of Hungary won the Cold War. Um, we helped set conditions, but, but they did the hardest of the work of it. And where regime change, opportunities prevent, present themselves to reach out to a society. And again, I'll, here I'll use the example of Iran because second largest Iranian city is Los Angeles, right? It's not Shiraz, it's not, it's Los Angeles. There are enormous number of Americans knowledgeable about Iranian society with organic links to Iranian society. And we as a government make almost no use at all of that. It's an enormous advantage that we could and should learn how to play. Uh, the third thing that I notice about Reagan administration, and I'm a little bit homesick for it, to be honest, um, is confidence in the universality of our values, right? Like it, it's almost unfashionable now um, to, to think that, you know, it's, it's actually self-evident that people have rights and they loan them in limited ways to governments for specific and agreed purposes by those governments. We no longer think that, you know, a, a Pakistani woman living in the federally administrated tribal areas inherently wants what we want. And yet, every time that Pakistani woman gets the opportunity to vote, she votes for religious pluralism, tolerance, and representative government. Um, the Reagan administration really, really sallied forth with confidence in our values, and we deserve to have a lot more confidence in them than we do. Um, moreover, the confidence we have in our values gives heart to people in repressive societies fighting for those values. They tell you that over and over again when you talk to them. Um, the next thing the Reagan administration did well, and here the three regime change cases I think speak to it, is they took opportunities when opportunities presented themselves, right? Because forcing change when it's not ripe is extraordinarily costly, as the Iraq example, I think, proves in spades. But opportunities present themselves. Windows open and close, right? Helmut Kohl famously uh, moved very fast and took almost any terms possible. He was even willing to take the terms of leaving NATO if we had not foreclosed that for German unification because he understood this was a window that was gonna close. And the Iranian uh, protests after the parliamentary elections in 2009, I think were huge opportunity for us to help reach into that society and foster positive change, and we missed it. The last thing I think the Reagan administration did really well, and again, I'm homesick for, is they played team sports, right? Like it, it mattered that we carried the Germans along with us on uh, deploying INF in Europe. It mattered that we and the British stood shoulder to shoulder on stuff. It matters actually not for us to be the sole clarion of what we want. President Obama is right about leading from behind, but what he gets wrong is that in order to do it successfully, you actually have to be generous enough to set others up to be successful, both domestically in countries you're trying to change and in bringing our allies along. Last thing I wanna say is about the state versus the people. Um, 
We Americans uh, ideologically tend to be on the side of the people against repressive governments. And many of our policies for dealing with authoritarian societies are based on a fundamental belief that when people control their governments, they are America's natural allies. And I desperately hope that's true, um, but it ought at least to be uh, examined empirically and analytically. Uh, for example, there are 300,000 Chinese students in our country every single year. And my belief is that they probably go home not hoping their teenagers dress like our teenagers, right? Not hoping they watch the same foolish stuff on TV that we watch, but probably also hoping that they can hold their government accountable in the way we hold our government accountable. I hope I'm right about that, but um, there are at least possible downsides, cyber risks, other things. The educating of the world's elites, I believe is a great and a good soft power tool for us, but we ought to consider whether that's actually true or whether it's just an article of faith for me. For podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.